in 1 John again this morning. You can open up in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. And I'm going to go ahead and read. You should have Bibles right there in front of you. Uh, they're New King James, uh, if you have them. I'll be referring a lot to the ESV as well. First, First John, though, chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I think we'll make it down to verse 19 today. I'll go ahead and read it. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that we sh- he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Let's pray. Father, we as your people now are gathering to hear from you and from your word. So, God, I pray by your spirit that you would move in our hearts, that, God, we would leave here with a greater love, with a greater affection, with a greater assurance than when we came in. And that, Lord, if any are here that don't know you, that they would hear, and that by hearing they may believe that you, Lord Jesus, are the Son of God, that you have died and you have raised. Holy Spirit, we can do literally nothing apart from you. So we ask that you would move right now. Apply your word to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's notes back there. I would, I would just encourage you, if you don't have notes, it'll, it'll really help you to follow along. Um, so last week, we examined... Uh, the testimony of God and, and the grounds for our assurance or our confession being God's testimony or, or God's confession. And we saw how the confession of Jesus being the Son of God and belief in his name was the only way to find life. God's testimony was the only way, was the way that we find confirmation that we're really believing the right things. But this week we're kind of taking a turn and I want you to look down in your, your Bible. I hope you have your Bible open. Verse 19, I want you to look at it real quick. Because I think John, and again, I'm kind of going to the bottom end of the passage, and then we'll we'll walk back through the passage. But let's just read verse 19. And, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I don't know who all, has anyone in here been been watching the movie or the show, series show, uh, Stranger Things? Anybody? Okay, just a few. Oh, wow. Wow, no, literally nobody. Okay. I'm strange, I guess. I watch Stranger Things. I, it's a scarier show, but it, the reason why it's scary, and I think this is really interesting, verse 19, it says that the world, the whole world, lies in the power of the evil one. And that shows Stranger Things. It, it is Stranger. That's why they call it Stranger Things. But they have something called the upside down. And in, in Stranger Things, it's basically like an alternate universe. 
that's parallel with this universe. But it's basically everything that this world is but inverse. Here's what's crazy that this verse does. And the reason why I think people love Stranger Things so much, maybe they do, apparently they don't, they don't love it, but I think my generation loves Stranger Things. And the reason why they do is because they know there's something bigger. They know there's an, there's an alternate universe at some level that we can't see. And First John's telling us, listen to what he says again, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See, Stranger Things is wrong in that they think there's an alternate universe somewhere. Here's the problem. First John's telling us that we live in that, that upside down. And that's completely different than the show Stranger Things because the show Stranger Things says, oh, we can enter the upside down. This text is saying, no, 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 we live in the upside down. We, we literally live in the upside down of darkness. And if you've seen Stranger Things, there's just all these weird creatures and bats and all sorts of different things, like vines that are like dragging you around, all sorts of stuff. And we look at it in Stranger Things and we're like, wow, that's kind of funny or whatever, but we live in that world. We live in a world that's literally under the power of the evil one. Every institution, everything you've seen this week is a part of that upside down. That's a, that's a very humbling reality that I want to present to us, and then we can start. So I, if you're taking notes, if you get one thing today, get this. That in a world of darkness and deception, the only comfort is found in assurance. Assurance that you have eternal life and that your prayers are heard. You have spiritual protection and you belong to God. That's it. If you get nothing else from today, get that. So look back in verse 13. Uh, This is what John says. He gives four assurances for the believer. He says this. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And the first assurance is the assurance, we saw it last week, but I want us to look at it again, is the assurance of eternal life. Now, John's concluding his letter here. We've seen a lot from John. All these different tests of what it means that you're a Christian. But the purpose of this letter is not evangelistic. He's not concerned about the person who doesn't know Jesus. That's kind of humbling. He is far more concerned for the believer. Now, in in John's gospel, just to be clear, John has already written a gospel. I want you to listen to its purpose in John 20. It's on the screen. John John 20, 31. This This was John's purpose in his gospel. This is what he says. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of his gospel is that you may hear, and upon hearing may believe, which is far more evangelistic. So if you're taking notes, that that you may hear, and by hearing may believe. But that's not his purpose in 1 John. His, His purpose in 1 John, he's almost assuming at some level that you've already believed. So I would encourage you, I just have to pause at this point. If, if you're not a Christian here today, if you know that, I, I want you to know something. What you're hearing today is really not for you. And I, I don't mean that to be, to be rude to you. I just want you to see that what John is trying to say to us and what I think what God is trying to say to us today is, is that you need to first hear the good news of Jesus and believe upon his name. 
Because here's the thing. We're living in the upside down. We're living in this world of darkness and deception. And you have no assurance. There is no assurance for you. And that's, that's, a, that's a scary thing. It ought to be a scary thing. But there's hope to turn from your sin, to trust in Christ, that you may hear that Jesus has paid your penalty and believe upon his name. And then listen to what he says, though, to the believer. He goes on. And he says, by believing, he goes on in verse 13. He says that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And here's the second point. By believing may have life, and by living may know. By believing you may have life, and by living you may know. This is it. This is what John has written for. He's written all that he's written so that people may hear, and that hearing may they may believe, and may, by believing they may have life, and by living they may know. And for if you're a Christian here today, here's what you need to realize. That doctrine, or the Bible, is not just to convert people. Okay, the Bible is far more than just converting the sinner, converting the heathen. The Bible is actually deep assurance for the Christian. Doctrine also has the duty of confirming in people who already believe. Because here's the thing, we live in the upside down. And the Christian, though they may still be a Christian, they may be born again. They have remnants of unbelief. And there are many Christians who are weak in their faith. I remember when I was in college, my junior year, it was a very dark time. Literally, I had $11 in my bank account. And I'd commuted to school. So if you're a commuter, you know, you need gas. There's this weird thing called gas. And it was rough days because I remember checking my bank account before I went to school. And I knew I only had like a quarter tank of gas. And I was driving to Frostburg and I'm like, I'm probably going to need gas. And if I do, I knew I was getting paid that week, so I was like, it's okay. If I just get through this week, I'll be all right. The whole time knowing that if I had to get gas, yeah, I'd have $11. But the problem is, I think that many Christians actually have that same kind of mentality in their Christian life. They walk around, rather than believing that they have the righteousness imputed from Christ, they walk around thinking, I have $11 here. Just wondering, anxious, am I really a Christian? I know I need, to, I need to make this right. I need to do something. I'm not, I'm not good. Going around wondering, when will the card decline? When's God going to reject me? Going around wondering, when's God going to kick me out? The Christian life is not meant to be lived with a kind of poverty mentality. Because what it does is it robs your joy of, of Christ. It robs your joy. If you're wondering, every time you walk in the church building, is today the day I'm just going to walk out? Is today the day I'm going to be an apostate? Friends, you will not have joy in God. (laughs) And the chief end of man is that we glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if you can't have assurance that you're truly his, then you will not enjoy him. People, though, I hear hear my, some friends in the back say, okay, Daniel, so you just presume, you just want to presume upon people that you can have eternal life. Or how dare you think, here, here's my generation and younger, they want to say, how dare you think you can know anything? How dare you think you can know you have eternal life? How presumptuous of you? But let me tell you something. 
It is not presumptuous to know you have eternal life. It's actually presumptuous to not know that you have eternal life. To be presumptuous is to fail to observe the limits of what's permitted. But the presumptuous person actually comes from doubting the word of God. If we say, I can't know, I can never really know if I'm a Christian or not. What you're saying is, God, your word, it's not enough. I'm too bad of a sinner. I I did too many things wrong. To presume upon God is actually not to trust what his word says. But brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian here today, have this assurance. If you have passed the tests of 1 John, of believing upon Jesus, of obeying him and loving him, then you have eternal life. Then we are those of the first fruits. But he goes on. He, he doesn't leave us with just assurance of eternal life. Listen to what he goes on and says in verse 14. He goes on and he says, here's the second reason. So now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So I want you to see the second point is assurance of prayers heard. It's funny, even thinking about that Stranger Things analogy, none of you will get this, but apparently nobody's seen it. But in Stranger Things, when they're in the upside down, sometimes there's moments where they can hear on the other side. And in those moments, even as they're in the upside down, they're deeply comforted. They're deeply comforted. Why? Because their prayers are, they're not saying it because it's, it's a weird secular show, but they're saying our prayers are heard. They could hear us on the other side. And John has already said something similar in this letter, but he goes on and he says, listen to the confidence. He says, now this is the confidence that we have in him. So the assurance of eternal life, here's why it matters. Assurance of eternal life is not just this esoteric, knowledgeable thing. Oh yes, I have eternal life. I'll sit and drink drink fine wine and sit in an ivory tower knowing that I have eternal life. No, 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 no. There's a purpose for it. Here's the purpose. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the second thing is prayer, or the first thing is prayers heard. And the question is, can you hear me? And John reminds his readers of the confidence that we have before God. A boldness in approaching him. And the logic is very simple. If we have been eternally rescued, then God hears our prayers right now. And this matters deeply. Listen to the words of Jesus. May the words of Jesus be comforting to you this morning. If you abide in me, and my word abides in you, you will ask what, what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Whatever, here's another place, and whatever you ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Listen to another one. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father's, in, ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Jesus has promised us that if we abide in him, that if we abide in him and we ask anything in his name, he will give it. Often when we consider prayer, 
this is me included. We think that if we pray with more unction or more force, that God hears us more clearly. But this is not what the text says. Listen to what it says. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So so God doesn't hear us for our prayer's sake. He doesn't even hear us for our name's sake. He hears us for his name's sake. Listen to what Thomas Goodwin, this, this quote just wrecked me this week. Listen to this quote. It's huge, so you're not going to be able to see it. But let me just listen to it. You are to consider that God does not hear you for your prayer's sake, but for his name's sake and his son's sake because you are his child. Do you hear that? He doesn't hear you because your prayers are louder. He's not asking you, speak, speak up a little bit. I can't hear you in the back. And he goes on, he says, The mother does not neglect to hear and relieve her child when her child cries. But she is tender, not because the child cries more loudly, but because the child cries, the weaker, and, but because the child cries, and the weaker the child is, the more pity she shows. So our prayers are not heard because we're good enough. Our prayers actually, in the moments of a Christian's greatest need, our prayers are probably heard more. You want to know why? Because they're in his name. What Goodwin says is that the child is not heard because he cries louder. He's heard because the name by which he prays in. So when we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. Goodwin, he goes on. I think he goes on in this. Oh, it's a very hard to see, but just listen. The faith we produce may be weak. Yet because its object is Christ, therefore it justifies. In the same way, so he says, so it is in prayer. It prevails, not because of performance itself, but because of the name in which it is made, even Christ. And Goodwin's just saying, all he's saying there is he's saying, your prayers might be the weakest prayers of any Christian that has ever lived. But hear this today, believer. The weakest Christian that's united to Jesus is still united to Jesus. The weakest and the strongest, it's not their hold, it's not their grasp on the Lord Jesus, it's his grasp upon them. And then he goes on and he says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So I want us to see that praying the will of God, confidence in prayer, praying the will of God. So we need to ask a question though, well what, what does John mean by the will of God? Well, The first thing I want to say, and it's really the only thing I want to say in this regard, is the will of God is not a mystery. Let me say it like this. There are multiple wills we could talk about from Scripture. You could talk about God's, God's secret will or his revealed will. But I think what John has in mind here is his, his, his revealed will. The will of God is not a mystery. I have had more college students. The number one question a college student will ask, because they have so many decisions to ask in their life, is what's the will of God for my life? And what I always want to say is very simple. It, God has shown us what his will is. Walk in step with that, and when you, when you do that, then, then his secret will becomes... His secret will is called his secret will for a reason. It's secret. So stop trying to discover his secret will. Walk in his revealed will. So he goes on and he says, when John says the will of God, listen to what he says in verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, 
So there's a qualification. Here's the qualification. According to his will. And when we treat God's will as some mystery to be discovered, what we do is we pray in a very haphazard way. We pray in a very world, we pray very worldly prayers. Fix this. Fix that. This sucks. Fix that. Help me here. My test. This, that, all these other things. All along saying, it could be the will of God. We're not really sure. But he has in mind here his revealed will. I want you to listen to even Jesus' words that he tells us to command. He tells us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But though it is made clear, it is not often clear what it looks like in every situation. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to his death. He knew what was prepared for him. He even knew from God's word what was prepared for him. And through tears of blood, literally is praying, Father, if it, if it pleases you, if, all, if, if things are possible for you, remove this cup from me. Yet not I will, but what you will. He knew the will of God. He knew what God's word said. And he was walking in step with it. And yet it took him to the cross. Jesus knew what he came for. He, yet he still prayed that the Father's will be done. So let me give you just a couple one. A couple for, for praying for our brothers, because this is what he's getting ready to give us. Because he says, if we know that he hears us, or he goes on and he says in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Let me just give you a couple passages of the will of God. We read it this morning, 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So in any given moment, just so we're 100% clear, In any given moment, you don't have to sit and wonder, what is the will of God for my life? He's told us, it's your sanctification. When we treat God's will like a mystery, we inevitably play down what God has clearly revealed in his word. We know God's purposes because he's told us. Here's another one, 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's these things. It's, it's not just that situations would be fixed, though we should pray for that. It's not just all these other things. It is these things that are revealed in his word. So our prayers should be in line with that. And you know what the most marvelous thing that John says is? He hears his children. We, living in the upside down, living in a world dominated by literally the prince of the power of the air, He says he hears his children. Whatever. Whatever. He moves from being confident that God hears us to being confident that he will answer. And it brings to mind what Jesus says in Mark 11 when he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. This means that we can ask for whatever. Anything. And we should never qualify this. We should never place any limits on this. But when we pray in line with God's word, we can believe it's going to happen. That's an amazing thing. But listen to how John applies it. I would not, I, in that moment, I would hear that and I would think, hmm, what can I get out of this? Where, where, where does Daniel benefit? But what's he do? What's he immediately do in verse 15? Look at 16, 15 and 16. 
He says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And in verse 16, he says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. So it's God's will for your brother. God's will for your brother. And he he really seems to be spelling out a specific instance of how the above passage plays out. The Christian is not saved unto himself. The Christian is not completely occupied with themselves. The Christian is occupied with the duty of caring for brothers and sisters. Notice the text even says in verse 16 that he will ask. He doesn't, it's not a command. It's, it's an implication. This is what he will do. So what Cain asks in the book of Genesis when he says, Am I my brother's keeper? The Christian can never ask. The Christian, his response is actually, I am my brother's keeper. I am my brother's keeper. I love my brother, and I will see him, and I will watch him from afar, and even up close, and I will pray for him. Listen to what he goes on in, in James chapter 5, same thing. My brothers, if any of among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The job of the Christian is to bring back those who are wandering. Or Hebrews 3, we could, we could cite a hundred different passages. But Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, least, any, least there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is the expectation of the Christian to be concerned for his brothers. Now we need to ask a question. One more thing, and then we'll get to that. So, if anyone sees his brother sending a sin, verse 16 which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give it to him. Okay, so I want to be really clear. And they're making, they're making in, in most translations, they do this. Verse 16, the, the first he is lowercased, and the second he is uppercased, which makes sense, because he will ask, that's the person asks, and then God will give it. That's what they're trying to say. But the problem is, this is unwarranted. I think it is. Ultimately, God is the one who gives it. But John's thrust is actually for us to see that the Christian is the one who asks, and the Christian, when he asks, is the one who gives it. This is is to put great weight upon us at some level. But I want to ask, before we get there, we need to ask a question. What is the sin that leads to death? So in, in one sense, we need to recognize, first off, that all sin leads to death. James, James 1, 15, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Or Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we need to specifically ask, okay, then what does John have in mind when he says, what is the sin that leads to death? The sin that leads to death has been much debate. There's been much debate about it. I don't know if you've heard... Uh, of the seven deadly sins, like that weird categorization of seven deadly sins. This is actually where they get that. So Catholic, the Catholic churches typically are, are focused on the seven deadly sins. The reason why is they're trying to say seven deadly ones, those are the ones leading to death. 
The ones who are not deadly, those aren't leading to death. That's their point. That's what they try to get that from. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what they, they should be saying. We need to remember, though, that John is talking about the Gnostics who've left their community. In 1 John 2, he said that they are the ones who went out from us. The Gnostics were the ones who forsook the gathering, and it was plain to all. I love what uh, I. Howard Marshall, he said this in his commentary about the, the sin that leads to death. He said that sin that leads to death is the deliberate refusal to believe in Jesus Christ, to follow God's commands, and to love one's brother. Now, now the text is not encouraging us to sit down and distinguish between people's, kinds of, people's sin. That's not the point. What we need to see, though, is that the sin that leads to death, I would argue, is, is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and what I mean by that, that this is a very manipulated text. Oftentimes, people oftentimes think they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit when they haven't. And I want to be clear. So Jesus, in Mark 3, you can turn to your Bible there, or you can look at it on the screen. Mark 3, there's, there's a situation that happens, and Jesus talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit here. And he says, and the scribes who came down to Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed, possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So there's a context to, to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying the core of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is saying, it's attributing to light, darkness. Listen to what he says. He goes on in Mark 3. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemes they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, were, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. His point there is to say that the, that the religious leaders, the scribes, they were attributing to good things. They were attributing to light, darkness. They were saying, Jesus, th- those works you're doing, that's of the devil. And he's saying, you, who, who say, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. He's saying, that's the sin against the Holy Spirit. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So if you're scared of being blasphemy in the Holy Spirit, let me guarantee you something. You haven't. Because, because someone who's blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they're not scared of that at all. The kind of person John is referring to is the kind of person who recognizes what they're doing. The point we need to see in this, and I, again, I, I went on a large aside at some level, but we need to see that the sin leads to death. The point is, is that we need to see, when we see our brother's sin, the point is, is that we need to pray. It's the first thing we do, and oftentimes well, the first thing we do is we want to tell somebody about it. We'll want to go talk to our, our spouse about it. We'll want to go talk to this person about it. We'll want to call our mentor and we'll want to talk about it. We'll want to do this and talk about it or go, go over here and talk about it. We'll get on Facebook and talk about it. We'll talk over here and talk over there. And John says, no, 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 pray. And not just pray, not just like, Lord, fix this for them. D- don't allow them to keep living with this person. No, 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 no. Pray the will of God for them. Pray, extend prayer requests in a such a way that if, if you took it out by a thousand years, would the prayer requests actually matter? Don't just pray for temporary things. Pray the will of God over that person. And then he goes on, he says, and we need to clarify too. He says to not pray for certain things. And I want to be clear on this. So there is a sin, he goes on in verse 16 and 17. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. 
All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. So we should see him say, don't pray for that. So who are the people he's saying, don't pray for that? Because that's really important. We should probably know who those are. And at first glance, this may appear really rude. It may appear really rude and mean of John. But John's point is that we should pray for those who are sinning. But at some point, once we have confronted them, once we have done due process of taking them through Matthew 18, he's actually saying we can stop praying without feeling guilty. We need to be careful, though, not to rush into this conclusion. Because it's not clear when this, this limit has happened. We should see that he gives us permission to stop praying for those who have clearly departed the faith. So, more than any of this, what we need to see is assurance of prayers heard. And prayers heard not only for ourselves, but also for our brothers. Let's move on to the third assurance. He gives a third assurance in verse 18 and 19. So, the third assurance is in verse 18. He says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. So the third is the assurance for spiritual protection. Assurance for spiritual protection. John now turns to another form of assurance for the believer. Namely, assurance for spiritual, from spiritual forces which may come against us. But notice what he says precedes that. He says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. So first, he says, like, like we just saw, the one who's been born of God, he doesn't keep on sinning. So he's, he's making clear, the one who has spiritual protection, the new birth must precede that. But listen to what he goes on and say, says. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he, now I want you to notice that word, but he, who has been born of God, protects him. Now I would argue that but he is actually referring to Jesus. And I know in some translations they say that protects himself, but I would argue that the one who's been born of God ultimately is the Lord Jesus. And the evil one does not touch him. Here's why. So this the point underneath that is, can't touch this. And when you hear that, I really want you to hear MC Hammer. I truly meant, I, in every way, it was not, it was very intentional. I need you to hear MC Hammer as you hear, can't touch this. I will not break into any dance, but can't touch this. Protection from above. The promise is that the evil one will not touch him. I don't know if you guys are familiar, maybe you're not, because you're not familiar with Stranger Things, but... The best week of the year, Shark Week. If you've ever watched Shark Week at all, they do something really weird in Shark Week, and I would not ever do it because number one, I don't like, I don't love water, but I definitely don't love sharks. But if you notice when they get in like with sharks, what they do is they get in a cage. Now there's some crazies that don't get in a cage. I don't want to talk about them. I'm talking about the people that get in a cage. And the thing about the people who get in the cage is they're not trusting that the shark won't bite them because. I don't know, they don't taste good. They're trusting that the cage is going to keep them. That nothing will touch them because there's an inch and a half of rebar outside of them. That's why, that's why they won't be touched. So I want to be abundantly clear. Satan can tempt the believer. He can tempt you. He can entice you. He can press you and bring persecution. But he cannot touch you. 
The word touch is very weak, but what it's conveying is a harming. He can't destroy you ultimately. He can't take, cap- take you captive. The evil one can't get a grip on you. The grounds for this comes from the fact that Jesus himself is the one guarding you. Listen to it again in verse 18. We know, or verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he, that's Jesus, who was born of God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Listen to the words of Jesus from John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What a comfort it is to know that because the Savior has prayed for you, your faith will not fail. Your faith is not dependent upon your ability to keep yourself. It is based in the fact that Christ keeps you. Even Jesus in another place, he promises. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Or listen to the Apostle Paul, the way he describes who can touch you, asking the question. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he protects us. Listen to the last one, the fourth assurance. Verse 19, he says, We know that we are of God And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And it's assurance for belonging to God. This last verse, he's saying, he just wants to remind us one more time that we know that we are from God. And the world that we live in, this upside down world that we are living in, lives under the power of the evil one. And he's saying, not you. Christian, not you. You you are not one who's living under the power of the evil one. You are one who is of God. And there is no greater assurance. In a world full of sharks, in a world full of the upside down, we have one who's standing right now over us. We have one who's standing right now over us and spiritually is protecting us. It's assurance that we belong to God. So we're going to move into a time of communion now. And I want us to consider assurance is a, is a very beautiful thing for those who have it. But for those who don't, it's a very ominous reality. And I will encourage you, if, if you're one here this morning who does not have assurance, we're going to move into a time, and I, I want to present a warning before we do this, and actually a time of reflection. A time of reflection and actually a time of response. But I want to read this warning to you before we take communion together. Listen to the, the Apostle Paul, what he says. And it just went away from me. Hold on just one second. Yeah. Listen to the Apostle Paul, what he says. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I want you to notice something in that text. 
If you're not a believer, I, I just encourage you, as the, cut, the elements pass, just to let them go. It's, it, no one's going to judge you. Um, but I will encourage the believer. If you're one who's sitting there wrestling through assurance, I want you to be assured of a couple things. I want you to be assured that the Lord Jesus, as you take the bread and as you drink of the cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And, and you can be assured that, he know, that, he, that you are his and he is yours. But to the person who's still walking in sin, this is what oftentimes happened, happened for me when I used to sit in the pew. We'd be driving to church, and I would say something to my wife, which was rude or ignorant. And then we would get in to service, and it would be time to take communion. And so when we talk about a response time, I just want to really, really encourage you. You can respond in any way the Lord is prompting you. If you want to come forward, please come forward. But I will encourage you, most of the time we need to respond before coming forward is actually looking to our side, to one another. So before you, before you take of this bread, I just encourage you, examine your life. The point is not that you not take the cup. The point is that you repent. The point is that you repent, that you turn and actually take of the bread and the cup. So I'm going to ask them to turn on a song, whatever song you guys have back there. Um, and just, I really encourage you just to take a time of response. And then we're going to take the elements. I'm going to give you a minute or two, and then we're going to take the elements together. So take any, whatever you need to do, however the Lord's prompting you. If you need to come forward, please come forward. If you need to respond, if you need to talk, ask for forgiveness from your wife, from your kids, whoever it may be, do whatever the Lord's prompting you to do. But I just encourage you, examine yourself before you take of the cup so that you not drink judgment upon yourself.